0: My dad can beat up your dad. See I, see, I see heads shaking out there already. This is one of the things you say when you're a kid, when, you, when you've reached the end of your own strength, is my dad can beat up your dad. See, the very active comparison that we have starts when you're really young, whether it's toys or uh, in high school it maybe video conferencing stuff or new phones, bikes, uh, in my time, it was hot cars. I had a uh, 383 Dodge with a four speed. I had to compare that to some of the other hot cars in my neighborhood. Because comparison is something we do as human beings. Inevitably, it leads to us either being humbled or proud. There's a whole branch of social science called social comparison theory that says that we, we try to make ourselves look better by comparing ourselves to other people. And the theological implications of that are amazing when you start to think about us comparing ourselves to each other. The truth is we spend a lot of times doing comparison, and it can get us into a bunch of trouble. Um, our pride of comparison ultimately may lead to our humiliation. But when God compares himself, it leads to his glory because he is incomparable. He is the incomparable God. Isaiah in chapter forty. Isaiah in chapter forty tells us all about that. Would you turn to Isaiah chapter forty with me? We just have a brief prayer here. Oh Lord Almighty, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, this is your moment. This is your time. This is about you. Draw glory to yourself, for you alone are worthy. Amen. The early chapters of Isaiah up to chapter 39, Isaiah is in his own time period. He's talking to the people of his day, keeps reminding them that they're in big trouble with God. They're doing all kinds of terrible things, spending a lot of time with idols that they shouldn't be spending time with. And he warns them again and again, and he warns the nations of the earth Something dreadful is going to happen. But specifically to the people of Israel, he says, you're going to be captive eventually. You're going to be captive in Babylon. All of a sudden, we turn the page from chapter 39 to chapter 40. And we hear these words, which are many, many years later. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. And he does that for a reason, because now these people are in Babylon. Imagine being lifted out of Belgium and being brought into the middle of, I don't know, Uzbekistan, a country that you don't know anything about. You don't know the customs, the foods, the people, the language, and finding yourself there for many, many years. And here's this prophet telling them, through the voice of God, comfort my people. He wants to tell the people of Judah, that there's good things ahead. When God wants to get our attention, starting at verse 9, he says this, he says, go up to a high mountain. We want to drop the volume on that a little bit, Joe. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. And that's what the rest of this chapter is about. Behold your God. He wants to explain to the people that are in Babylon that they can have hope because of who God is. So he begins with verse 12. He says, he wants to compare God to nature. He says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? How many of you have been to Lake Michigan recently? One of the neat things about Lake Michigan is you can stand on the on the edge of the bluff and you can literally see the curvature of the earth if you look real carefully. And just imagine cupping Lake Michigan in your hand. And Isaiah, through the power of the Spirit, is saying, God does more than that. He can literally cup all the water of the earth in his hand, which is 187 quintillion gallons of water. Lake Michigan alone is a quadrillion gallon, so that'll keep you busy for a while. And then he goes and he says, and he's marked off the heavens with a span. What is he saying here? He's marked off the heavens with a span. What is God doing when he's marking off the heavens with a span? Well, if we calculate the size of the universe, it's somewhere around 93 billion light years wide. The Milky Way is only five thousand light years wide. It's hundred. 5,000 light years, which means you'd have to travel for 105,000 years to get from one side of the Milky Way to another at the speed of light. God says, I measure the universe, which is 93 billion light years wide with a span. Now what does that mean? It means he does it like this. From one tip of the finger to the tip of his thumb. People in Babylon Your God measures the universe with a span. Now, of course, Isaiah is using an anthropomorphic language here. He's comparing God to a man, but he's trying to explain the immensity of who God is. Then he goes goes on to another question. He says he's superior in another way. He said, who has measured the dust of the earth in the measure? Now, my wife may be the only person that comes close to this because she looks for, for dust. She will find dust. Anywhere. My office needs dusting right now. She'll probably tell you there's more dust in my office than there is in the universe. But he's saying here, all the dust. Have you ever seen one of those buildings exploded on TV? Or maybe even up close and personal. Everything is just nothing but dust. And here he's saying, but God is measuring the dust of the earth in a tiny measure. And by the way, he can count all those grains of dust. And he goes on and he says, and weighed the mountains and scales and hills in the balance. He's saying that Mount Everest would literally be weighed in a balance for God. He dropped Mount Everest on a balance. Again, he's trying to tell the people in Babylon, your God is greater. Your God is stronger. Your God is higher than any other, just like we say. The prophet is trying to tell us what Stephen Charnock said, the one who has measured the creation cannot be measured by the creation. We cannot measure God. He is incomparable. People in Babylon, during the times of your struggle, during the times of your shame and sadness and sorrow, behold your incomparable God. Then he goes on and he asks some more questions. He said, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. The mind of God is incomparable for us to read. He's literally saying, who has assessed what the Spirit is doing? How many of you and I can say, I know exactly what God is doing? Because we can't. It's always funny to me when I see somebody trying to read the mind of another person and saying, I know exactly what you're thinking. Very rarely is that the case. And we make all kinds of silly assessments because of that. We how another person thinks and reacts and plans and pursues ideas are very complicated. We may try to predict it, but we may be completely wrong, with the exception if there's one parking spot in a large parking lot. Then we can predict human behavior. Especially if there's two cars. I always want to ask those people with the uh those toleration bumper stickers, will they say? coexist? I always want to see if like, two of them were in the parking lot together and there was one parking spot. I really want to do that as an experiment. Just ponder that sometime. Let's coexist, but there's one spot. There's no way for us to assess what God is doing. We learn some things from the Scripture, but when it comes to daily life and what's going on all the time, for us to say, I know what he's doing, that's one of the reasons it's very dangerous to ask the question, why? You'll never get that answer from God. And most human answers to why will be completely inadequate or imperfect. And then he says, what man showed him his counsel? In Babylon, there was a God named Marduk. And Marduk, whenever Marduk made a decision, he had to counsel with another God. And the other God's name was Ea. And they they sat down together and they talked and said, what do you think we should do? Well, that's the whole purpose for this passage is for God saying, who will you compare me to? I'm not like these other gods. We often want to give God advice, right? I mean, in your private moments, right? Lord, I have a suggestion for you. We can't give him counsel. He's an incomparable God. With who did He consult? It says right there. God has no cabinet of officers. He has no board of directors. He has no focus groups. He doesn't get a bunch of angels together and say, you know, we've got a problem over here. And No, God does what he does because God is God, and he's incomparable. He makes his decisions, he makes his choices without consulting anyone, especially man. We ask for advice when we're uncertain. We ask for input to get broader perspective. It's because as human beings we don't have full perspective, but not with God. With whom did he consult? No one. Who made him understand? In the Hebrew, it literally means to gain experience or to learn or, or to, to gain knowledge. For us as human beings, I'm, I'm thinking even in my own life, it's taken me years just to learn how to do certain things, to develop insight, to understand what's going on, to make judgment calls. Those things are very difficult. It takes a human being maybe 50, 60, 70 years to be able to just say, okay, I think what's I understand what's going on. But who made God understand? No one. He's incomparable. So people in Babylon, when you see yourself in struggle and trial and pain and effort, remember this is a God who understands everything. Ready? He knows all things possible and actual. Let me say that again. He knows all things possible and actual. Let me take a little bit farther. One of the old theologians would say he has an infinite understanding of his infinity. Think about that this afternoon while you're watching the Packer game. He has an infinite understanding of his infinite perfections. He's incomparable. He has always known and always will know all there is to know. The people in Babylon, when you're in struggles and trials, remember, God knows all. He goes on to say, Looking at verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket and accounted as dust on the scales. He takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. God manages the earth as he sees fit. And even if you read in Psalm 2, why that the heathen rage? that he that his sits in the heaven will laugh and have him in derision. The Middle East has been a hotbed of warfare forever. It's still going on right now. It's been going on for thousands of years. And it was true in the time of Isaiah when he was prophesying. Uh, the, uh, Judah had been attacked by the Assyrians. Their, their King Sennacherib came in in 701 and attacked all over the place. And there were just terrible things were going on until... God asks this question, has any God of any other nation ever delivered his hand from the king of Assyria? Because at one point in time, God literally wipes out 185,000 Assyrians in one night. The nations are less than nothing to him. He will do what he will do because he's the incomparable God. He says the nations are like a drop in the bucket. That's where you get that phrase from. Those nations include the Persians, who were very powerful at one time. They include the Greeks. If you think about Greece today as a country compared to what it once was, I've been there. It's a country with great inflation problems with unemployment. They were once powerful. They are less than a drop in the bucket to God. And yes, even America, even America, For us, who are foolish enough to think that God is not moving America through history the way he wants it. We are very foolish to think that we are managing that. God is going to do what God is going to do. Mao Zedong was once asked, what do you think of democracy? He says, it's too soon to tell. That's the sweep of history that God works with. America may be gone in 10 years, under the power of God, because that's what he wants to do not us. He's incomparable. He goes on to say that idols cannot compare to him. He says, look, to whom then will you liken God? That question alone, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol, craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for its silver change. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot, seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. They're just idols. You're not going to compare God to an idol that cannot move or an idol made out of silver and gold. To whom then will you liken him? No one compares to God. He's incomparable. People in Babylon, do not look at all these idols around you and try to even compare them to him. We believe in monotheism because God does. Think about that for a minute. You can't compare him to anyone else. Who does God resemble? No one. That's why we're instructed not to make graven image. The earth itself does not compare to God. Listen to this, do you not know? Do you not hear has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. You know that Columbus actually read that passage and realized that he wanted to go and fulfill the idea that the earth was circular instead of flat. There's a whole big text on it. I'm going to go fulfill that passage because the earth is a circle. He sits upon it, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He talks too about great leaders cannot compare to God He says, in the situation, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth who brings princes to nothing. He blows on the princes and they come to nothing. What was once great leaders in this nation or any other nation of the world are dead, buried, dust. He brings them to nothing because he is the everlasting God, the incomparable God. People in Babylon, under the impression of the rulers that you're living with right now, remember that these rulers themselves will be brought to nothing. Because I am the Lord and there is no other. The universe itself cannot compare to God. Look at this He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. He's the creator. Now, most of us would rather probably try to develop a universe than pitch a tent, because pitching a tent can be a rather difficult process. But he says, the Assyrians are gone. I'm still here. Then he says that he knows the number of stars, and not one of them is missing. Look at verse 25. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One, the Kadosh. Who will you compare me to? This is God himself speaking. Lift up your eye on high and behold all these things. If you go to the mountains of Colorado or Montana and you get up in the night sky and you see these millions of stars, he says, I know every one of them. We think that this, the number of stars in our galaxy, the Milky Way, is 100 billion. That'll keep you busy for a while. God never stands at the gates of heaven and says, now where'd that quasar go? I, I, I'm missing the quasar today. I, I mean, I lose my keys every day. And God masters the universe. That's what the Hebrew people call him, the master of the universe. Literally he knows every star. Not one of them is missing. People of Babylon, when you are in trouble, look up into the night sky. Search out the heavens. I am the one who created all these things, and I know every one of them by name. You place the stars in the sky, and you call them by name. You are amazing, God, as we say. And so this brings us to the value of this text. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. He calls himself creator in this context and reminds us that he is a being of exhaustless energy. He can do whatever he wants to. I think the best analogy I can think of is the sun itself. The sun just burns on and on and on. We just sort of assume it's there. This exhaustless power of energy that's burning all the time, and God says, I am God and there is no other. Marathoners grow tired. Tour de France riders get exhausted. Firefighters, rescue workers, police officers all grow weary. But whoever waits upon the Lord, shall renew their strength. Even in ministry, we grow tired. I'm thinking of something the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians. He said, we despaired even of life. Now this is the Apostle Paul, someone we hold up in extremely high regard. He said, we despaired even of life, but God. Young people want to sleep all the time. I had a kid in my senior high class uh, when I was uh, Uh, doing some Sunday school, and I asked him, if you could rule the world, what what would you want to do? He said, I'd sleep. Because they're tired. All all, They really need to renew their strength. I mean, I've never quite figured that out. And yet you and I can be old and renew our hope and renew our strength. People in Babylon, when you're exhausted, and you think there's no hope, just remember God's incomparability is a great source of our hope. What will sustain someone in their darkest fears? It won't be Oprah Winfrey telling you, think positive thoughts. When my daughter was dying of cancer, people would tell me over and over again, we'll send you positive thoughts. And I always wondered, what does that mean? She is going to die. When she was given the grim news this year that the medical team could do no more for her, There were eight people in that room. There were doctors, nurses, and social workers standing around her, and she's laying in a bed, and she looked at them, and she said, I know my Redeemer lives. That does not come from positive thinking. It comes from knowing the incomparable God to be able to say, I'm ready. I know my Redeemer lives. Behold your incomparable God. Folks, we are in Babylon right now. This is not our home. This is Babylon. This earth is Babylon. This is a dark place compared to where we are going. But we constantly turn and hope to a God who is greater than nature, greater than all the thoughts of the greatest minds can think, greater than all the nations, greater than any idol known to man, greater than the great leaders, greater than the universe itself. In him I will hope. Paul says it this way, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction, the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. I remember who's talking. This is someone we hold up on a pedestal. This is Paul. He says, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Isaiah tells us this, it will be said on that day, it will be said on that day, these words, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in our salvation. If you do not know that Jesus Christ can provide you salvation, now is the time. Today is the accepted hour so that you can know this incomparable God. Don't die not knowing him personally, for that would be a tragedy beyond imagination. You can know this God through Jesus Christ today. This is God incomparable. God incomparable. We are in Babylon, but one day we will go to the heavenly Jerusalem and see him face to face. Let's pray. Lord, remind us daily, remind us hourly, remind us every minute, remind us every day that you deal in terms of infinity and eternity. And you have a broad, sweeping plan that is beyond our imagining. And yet, you stoop down to be with us in the face of Christ, so that we may one day be with you. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.